Welcome to Whisker Dice. Hey, you folks, I'm your host, the Conzy with the Most, and I am joined today by... Hello, everyone. It's Justin, the Meeple's Champion here. And I'm Matt, the Ghostwalker. And guess what? This is episode 106106 of the Whisker Dice Tabletop Gaming Podcast! <laughs> 106 episodes. That's amazing. But most importantly, it is February 22nd, 2023 today. And on today's episode, we're going to chat with James and talk about tabletop RPGs that aren't Dungeons and Dragons. We'll catch up on the tabletop gaming news. But first, let's go ahead and roll into the games that we've been playing. What have you guys been playing? So the first game, uh, I had a chance to pull this one out with uh, with Conzie and Suzanne not that long ago. We're going to talk about Flamecraft. So Flamecraft is published by Cardboard Alchemy. Uh, it did a Kickstarter, I want to say, last year. And they actually got it out the door, despite all the shipping challenges that everybody has been fighting in the Kickstarter world. Uh, it, it does play in about 60 minutes. I think that's pretty accurate. Uh, might go a little longer your first few times playing. Uh, player count, it supports two to five players. So the way I describe this one is uh, a simplified worker placement game is the best way I could think to describe it. Now, bear in mind, I purchased the deluxe edition of this game. But from my perspective, it has just absolutely gorgeous art. It has wonderful components, and I really wish Suzanne was on to talk about this because it's it's one of her favorite things. It has wonderful organizers in the Deluxe Edition, uh, so everything has a place. So if you do have your chance to grab it uh, from that and you're like, oh, but how am I going to keep it organized? This has got you covered. There's a lot of things going on in the game just from the art. There's a lot of very punny names in the game. The way I, I heard another person describe it is, you know, it's a worker placement game with no penalties pretty much for taking an action. So you really only have one worker. You have to move them around the various shops and choose if you're going to try to enchant that shop or basically make the shop more powerful or are you going to be trying to gather resources and activate the various things in those shops. So one thing I will say, if you are looking for a crunchy game, very Eurocentric style game. This is probably not the game for you, but it is fun. It's a simple, I, I think it's a great like pull people in game. And I do think it's great to play with the family too, because it's not as aggressive. I can do you a lot of damage type thing. Any thoughts, Conzie? This game was very interesting, and I was actually pretty excited to actually try it because I've heard a lot of people talk about Flamecraft. I will note, I'm very glad I had the opportunity to play it and try it. I'm also not going to be running out and buying this game anytime soon. That said, it's it's not because it wasn't a bad game. It's an actually a very good game, but it's a... Uh, uh, yes, and I think you're quoting myself, actually, when I said uh, there. this game is definitely doesn't punish you for anything it's all rewards all <laughs> achievement awards you get you get your little achievement medallion every time you take a turn and it's all warm and fuzzy and cute and cuddly and that is absolutely cool and fun 
You know, it's almost surprising that they have an end mechanism that awards a winner <laughs> of the game. But it's uh, it, it is an intriguing amount of strategy that you you do you can put towards the game and and trying to you know gather the resources and when to spend the resources and what you're going to spend those resources towards is all a very interesting kind of decision mechanic and so there's a lot of actual interesting things that are still going on in the game for all of the fuzzy warm feelings you get while you're playing it. And it's not just because you're playing a dragon that's huffing and puffing and burning things down, because they're not. Although there is, I think, one dragon that's got kind of a scary name in it. You know, they could have put any theme on this, really, and and it wouldn't have mattered as far as the cute, cuddly themes. But overall, like I said, it's it's a good game. I'd recommend it for anybody with family with kids, that's for sure. I will say the artwork and the thematic way they built it it definitely comes through in the throughout the game too so uh, i do i do agree with ben they probably could have said it was pandas and done it in pandas just as well with panda puns but um, they did a very good job with the artwork and all all of the theme to keep it all very dragon centric but like you said it's not like fire breathing burn down the village dragons so they're fun helpful dragons so but. oh yeah this is no agricola you know there's no st- your family's starving oh hey you couldn't feed a member there's negative ridiculous points that you can never get rid of and you made one mistake and you can't get enough wood and you're literally up a creep creek for the entire game and I actually really like it about that. I'm kind of, it sounds like I'm making fun of it, but I actually really kind of like about like that about this game. And I'm really glad you you own it because it'll give me an opportunity to play it every every once in a while and an excuse to not have to try to buy it. It's definitely one of those games that you don't have to like every once in a while you just need a break and it's not as heavy and it's not as crunchy and it's not as you know, I've got to figure out how to work around you or compete with you and it's nice to have those every once in a while to fill in. Mm-hmm. So. Oh, absolutely. That is Flamecraft from Cardboard Alchemy. We'll be excited to see what else they have coming out in the near future. But transitioning to our next game, we're actually going to talk about the Batman miniature game, and more specifically, the small tournament we just had at Noble Knight Games uh, called Frozen Assets. Suzanne and Matt were actual players. I actually ran the game, or ran the event, and then because we, I think we had five players show up. On the day of, I ended up having to play Ringer for a couple of rounds, uh, which I don't know if I was the best person to play as a Ringer because nobody got an easy game against me. But hey, I thought the event went off pretty well and we had a nice prize pool. Since I didn't really do a whole lot of playing, I wasn't playing as a participant. How did it go for you as a player? So I probably have a different approach to tournaments than most people do, but as Ben knows my long-term history of miniature game tournaments, I don't think I've ever attended a tournament expecting to win it. But, you know, my old Warhammer days were playing dwarves where it was almost literally impossible to win a tournament with dwarves. I do it because I want to play my, like, challenge myself and play some new players because, no offense, Ben, I can play you any day of the week. But it's always nice because we draw in some players that we don't get to see every day. And it's fun to play them and see what they've done with their their miniatures and, and what type of style of play they do. So we had a couple players from Minnesota and that. So for me, it was just a lot of fun. Uh, I played two people that I, I pretty much never played. And Ben played a list that I've never seen. So for me, it was just three games of fun. I will say I feel like I'm I'm not as young as I used to because the mental strain of 
three or four games in a row kind of i feel really out of it by the fourth one but uh or third or fourth one but but other than that i mean i always just love to do it just for the fun and to experience other people's playing lists that i'll never see in madison because we're we're i won't say never i will say we're a growing market in madison and it's awesome to see the growth that we've had lately but we're we're not like minnesota where they have a fairly sizable i think batman presence right now so you know we'll get there we'll, oh we'll yeah we're definitely challenge. getting there we're so. definitely getting there in fact uh i think for regular gameplay we might be closing in on some nights that are are equal to or rivaling the minnesota crowd for their regular weekly nights so hey uh that's cool um we did our players from out of town were from indiana and iowa actually so they we're actually um, from there yep Okay. We well, didn't I have anybody before. I didn't realize they were coming up from there. So yeah, Finian, who is our tournament winner, actually uh, is from the Minneapolis area, but he's going to college in Iowa. So oh, so he's kind of a Minneapolis area player. So yeah, they were all. We had three states represented in our little Batman tournament. So that oh, was pretty nice. awesome. So yeah, we'll have some pictures up on the blog about the about the event. Uh, like I said, uh, Finian with his court of owls actually came in as our tournament champion, and you know I feel pretty good about that because uh, you know he's a good good kid and played really well on the day of. So although he was a little sneaky, I think with uh, what he did to Jason in round two, basically putting his one Intel support character up on top of a very tall building. Um, which then I had to make a kind of a tough ruling because it it definitely felt like it hurt Jason, but the re- you know the an Intel support model is placed and not moved. So normally, if you move a model, they could just fall the remaining distance down like a, a tall height. But a since you are placing and you can't just place a model in a space that where they would fall, I had to rule that you, you know, he couldn't get this, his Intel support model off the top of this tall building, which meant his boss for his crew, who would be motivating all of his organized crime little thugs, really couldn't do what he was supposed to. So there was, uh, uh, you know, he was facing an uphill battle from like turn two on. That was probably the, the deciding thing that happened in the tournament for who won the event, actually, so... But it was interesting, and it, and it was a good event, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. The next one will be a narrative event, uh, actually, and not a full-blown competitive tournament. So uh, look forward I, I am to... looking forward to that one. I, I think, especially in the BMG space, I, I mean, there's so many opportunities there to have like a narratively linked game one is this, and depending on how you do, you move into game two with this narrative, and mm-hmm. just a lot of fun that you could do there. So, well. All sorts of like little riddle riddle things also going on. Like we're gonna have like a little riddler puzzle that you can also figure out during the competition and and whoever figures out the riddler thing first correctly is going to get a prize and and then you have the whole like it's gonna be feature the whole thing will feature an Arkham breakout. So all of the villains are all these villain crews are breaking out of Arkham and so there's going to be objectives and goals, and then there's going to be, but there's this master hidden power fe- feature that you're slowly going to be kind of trying to piece piece together and figure out who this character is or this player is that's that is this hidden power for how how all of the 
how the Arkham breakout was orchestrated because it's all a surprise to these to to all of the players that are happening. So it'll be an interesting. I've got I've got this thing's been since pre-COVID lockdown. I started writing this thing, so it's going to be very interesting to see how it how it ends up ultimately working out and how many players we actually get to turn out for it. Well, if you're listening, why don't you check out wiscodice.com for links to the games that we discussed here. And while you're at it, don't forget to leave a review of this podcast wherever you download podcasts. Next, let's roll into news. Newsflash, did you know that we have a YouTube channel? Find out more information about board games, reviews, and recommendations on our channel. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe today. Also, by the way, don't forget that we are going to be at Adepticon on March 26th through the 20, uh, 22nd through the 26th. There are still event tickets available for the two days of the Batman miniature game that myself and Stark will be playing in. And of course, if you wanted to catch a game with us or stop by and just say hello, that would be awesome too. And you never know, we might have some cool swag to hand out to you if you do so. Or if you're in the Madison area and want to catch a game with the Whiskered Ice crew, we would love it if you join us at our monthly board game nights at Misty Mountain Games on the east side of Madison. The next game night is on March 31st, starting at 6 p.m. We hope to see you there. And if traveling to Indiana is your bag, Gen Con badges are are for sale right now. Conzi, Suzanne, and I will be at the show. More news will be coming out soon regarding the events and activities that Wisco Dice will be participating in. We would love to meet you at that show, too. And we have some less fun news to go through this time. Publisher Holy Grail Games is shutting down. Um, they are the publishers of uh, Rallyman GT and Museum. You hate to see a publisher get knocked out of the business. It's It's a sad thing. They currently have six unfulfilled games, which includes their most recent project, Copen Dying City, that was successfully funded in early December. I actually suggest you go to their website and take a look at uh, what they posted about them closing. It's uh, pretty interesting. There's a lot to do with, you know, uh, uh, the pandemic and a lot of the shipping problems. And it's an interesting read. But again, unfortunate that they will be shutting down. Another not so great news, Funnigan Distribution, their shutdown has also caused a lot of crowdfunding projects, some issues in getting their projects out to backers. Companies like Paverson Games and their game to Skilled kind of had to scramble to find alternative ways to get their games out to backers now that they are finally making their way into the country. I know. I absolutely am pumped for Distilled. It's like... yeah closing in on potential top 10 game territory for me if only uh, i had my copy which i still don't have and that one really hurts me in the the old uh <laughs> art let's let's switch it out to uh some more some more fun topic uh, and talk a little bit about some crowdfunding projects you can look forward to the first one uh these are both kickstarter projects the first one is called the blacksmiths of steinheimer it looks to be a light worker placement game where you are dwarven blacksmiths gathering resources and forging mighty weapons and armor. That's Blacksmiths of Steinheimer on Kickstarter. And then the second one I wanted to mention is a Kickstarter called Ten Tricks. And this is the board game version of Tetris. It is a game where each turn you flip over a card and you have to put that Tetris shape on your board somewhere. 
and then you have to avoid the limit bar that slowly moves down as the game progresses as you build up your Tetris board. There's also some interesting things that they do with bonus tiles. So as you build your board and build it out to these little different spaces, you'll trigger little bonus tiles that can let you manipulate your, your Tetris shapes and even potentially like remove ones that are annoying from your board. There's even some take that where you could put an annoying piece on somebody else's Tetris board. It actually looks pretty cool. I, I just came in, you know, something that caught my eye recently. Uh, so that's 10 tricks on Kickstarter. And also for other crowdfunding projects that have caught our eye recently, go check out our Kickstart Monday blog on wiscodice.com. All right. And with that, let's go ahead and take a break. And when we get back, hey, folks, we'll this is we'll the start start talking to James. I just wanted to take a moment to tell you about Misty Mountain Games here games in Madison, Wisconsin. Are you playing CCGs, RPGs, awesome role playing games, paint and hobby scratch that itch that aren't all of your tabletop gaming experience and needs? Trust me, you want to stand by find it online, give them a phone call, or swing on by their brick and mortar store here on the east side of Madison. Don't worry, that is mistymountaingames.com. Check them out today. And we're back, and we've been joined by our good friend James. How's it going? It's going great, because I'm not outside in this blistering cold right now. <laughs> it's not quite blistering cold until tomorrow, maybe, but uh, <laughs> say it's still t-shirts and t-shirts and shorts weather for. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I'm a little weird like that, so. Well, I'm in a drafty office sitting next to a space heater for, in my defense. So, <laughs> uh, You must have spent too much time down where it's warmer because, like Ben said, it's practically shorts and a t-shirt weather here in Wisconsin. Yeah. Uh, I will admit, while I was on my honeymoon in New Zealand, I was used to high 60s and low 70s. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I heard I heard you got to tour some really cool stuff in in New Zealand like uh Hobbiton. We we opened with a phenomenal tour, two tours of Hobbiton in fact, and the only disappointment was that in our tour group I was the only one who wanted to recreate the Bilbo I'm going on an adventure run. No one else was willing, willing to do that. That's pretty epic epic. Hopefully you weren't banging your heads too much on the ceilings of hobbit holes that whole time, but ate and drank like a hobbit, that'd be okay. Uh, I did do that, because the reason we went back a second time was for the tour that ends with a banquet at the Green Dragon Inn. So I can say I've, I have gotten to have a feast at the Green Dragon. Nice. Very nice. nice. All right. Well, we're not here to talk about New Zealand as much as that is pretty awesome to talk about and uh it's on the bucket list of things that i think most of us either participating in today's show or listening to it are probably on our on our little bucket list of things we we want to go check off and do is going and visiting hobbiton but today we're here to talk about uh role-playing games and specifically uh there's been a lot of talk about Dungeons and Dragons and Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro and this thing called the OGL. I can say I knew what the OGL was kind of loosely, but I, I myself, I never wasn't really creating content that I was ever going to sell. And, and I know, so it was never really relevant and I never dug into it, but 
there's been a, a literal storm of comments in the news and the media, and I think even some mainstream news now about the OGL. So, James, I, I think what I'd like to start with is just if you could tell us what the OGL is and, and what does it really mean to role-playing games in general. Like, Can you help translate that for us and kind of people that are a little bit on the outside? Okay, well, I mean, to start with, I'm a retail geek. I am not a legal geek. So you are getting my extremely layman's understanding of it. We're not asking for an attorney. <laughs> Attorney's opinion. Okay. That's good, because you're not getting it from me. Um, I don't even play one in tabletop games. But the OGL, it stands for Open Game License, and it came about... Uh, back when Dungeons and Dragons 3rd Edition launched. And, you know, now we make all three of us feel very old when we realized that was over 20 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. You're welcome. But what it enabled people to do was to use the rule set of Dungeons and Dragons to make and monetize their own content without having to cut Wizards of the Coast in on that deal at all. It was basically just, okay, here's the D&D system reference document. That's another acronym you'll hear is SRD. And you can use this system reference document to make your own content based on our rule set, have fun with it, monetize it. And what I think a lot of people who are now very justifiably upset about the kerfuffle that happened, but I'm sure we'll touch on that later, what I don't think they remember is back 20 years ago, and so because we were talking pre-streaming videos, and pre-podcasts and everything, this resulted in a deluge of physical content. Anybody with a printer could make their own books and did. And quality control was not a thing. And uh, nowadays, it is most utilized for digital content. So you get to bypass printing and you get a lot of digital books, you get a lot of podcasts, and then you get the actual play, maybe with or without air quotes, of things like The Adventure Zone and Critical Role. Sure, so I think from a retail side though, because that's that is your background, I think you hinted at the OGL kind of initially when it was in, pl in place, uh, ended up with a lot of non-quality products, but has that shifted over time? Is it, are we, you know, I, I see for the printed printed stuff that I see on the shelf, it it seems to be kind of the same companies that stores are carrying and and seems like maybe some of those quality issues have sorted themselves out. Well, I think that's, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I have not, Crunch the numbers. This is just what I've noticed in the last 15, more than 15 years. 
I think you hit the nail on the head, and part of it is that a lot of the quality issues sorted themselves out. Back in the beginning, one of the side effects you saw was a lot of IPs going D20. Even if the D20 system really wasn't appropriate for that IP. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember you had Farscape as a D20 game. You had uh, Monty Cook rewriting World of Darkness to be a D20 setting. The one that I think hurt my little geek inside the most was seeing Deadlands become a D20 product, just in ways that did not work well, in my opinion. God, that's and, taking me back. I completely forgot about all the D20 time. And it, and it wasn't very long. I didn't feel like it was terribly long-lived, but you're right. I mean, it was like everybody and their brother wanted to convert to a D20 system at that time. Right, and and you saw a lot of overlapping ideas. Like you'd see three or four different companies do their own uh, effectively complete book of paladins. But now, yeah, I mean... you. I think one of the things that's happened now is because printing has gotten so much more expensive and it's so much harder to get it, you know, regionally in the United States. And a lot of the companies that frankly weren't practicing quality control are no longer with us. That now you do have uh, a fair amount of 5e compatible products, but usually from companies that they know that if they're going to fork over the money, the money to put it physically in print, they better have a good quality product. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the TSR days of Dungeons & Dragons when they would print nearly anything, right? I mean, they the ideas were just going crazy, and they would print some you know, pretty non-quality products near the end just to just to pump out product to the market. And then it kind of that you know that went away when Watsy bought them, right? And and acquired TSR and, and Dungeons and Dragons, well at least acquired Dungeons and Dragons. But then yeah, the the OGL kind of reopened that for everybody and their brother to pump out those products for a while. But it's like everything else, I think hits the open market sooner or later. It settles down and people wisen up and start to figure out what products are they, they like, what companies they like, and like and start to trust that aren't aren't Watsy and official products and kind of go down. So I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, like my, one of my favorite alternate publishers, Gooey Cube done uh, for 5e Dungeons and Dragons products. There's, there's a lot of effort that was in quality that's put into those products that I don't see the core D and D products ever really putting that kind of effort into it, but they're, they're not for everyone either, but I'm glad that there's room now on the market for something like that to exist. Well, and I think, um, I mean, Gooey Cube absolutely is a, a fantastic example of a company. If, if we want to eventually get into why so many people are upset, Gooey Cube does phenomenal work. I'm with you on that one. Their, their D&D products are amazing. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but yeah, they put in effort to make sure that they are well-written with gorgeous artwork and give you any peripherals you want all in the same box. Uh, big shout out to them. But they only get to do that because of the permissiveness 
of the open gaming license. This is not like Cubicle 7, who puts out uh, you know, Lord of the Rings as a uh, fifth edition compatible product. Cubicle 7 has their own uh, product lines as well. They would not suffer if they uh, too badly if they lost fifth edition. They, they would have plenty of other IPs to fall back on. GUI Cube needs the OGL to do what they do under their current business model. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of companies that are like that. So that's that's really, I think, why the OGL is important and why, why people were so worked up is, is that OGL was at risk of being uh, replaced by a far more restrictive one. It seems like the market's kind of settled down on that. I think the WotC has made some good decisions once everybody got all fired up in the it's yet to be fully seen if uh, things will stay status quo or even potentially move in a, a more positive direction. But at least for now, it seems like most of the chatter there is is settled. But everybody knows of Dungeons & Dragons, the big, huge RPG game on the market. In fact, Matt and I and most of the Wisco Dice team are in our own little Dungeons and Dragons campaign, and we occasionally talk about it on the show, our little rhyme of the uh, rhyme of the Frost Maiden campaign, and we're having a blast with it. But what's really curious to me is outside. There, there's clearly and some of this that open, you know, some of this OGL conversations. I start going, man, what other D and what other RPG products are out there? that maybe I should pay a little more attention to that are full systems. Maybe they're not, they're not D20 systems, but are full systems. I was wondering if, if there was one system out there that you would recommend to check out that isn't Dungeons and Dragons, what would that be? I will tell you my current system obsession right now is Modifius's 2D20 system. What what makes that cool? So this is a system that is extremely modular. I've really familiarized myself with it via two different games. The tabletop adaption of the Dishonored video game series and the tabletop adaption of the Fallout video game series. But they also use it for Star Trek and Dune and Conan and Actun Cthulhu and Infinity and several others that I know I'm leaving out. What I think makes it very cool is need, none of those games are a copy and paste of the other. They know which rules to trim and ritual, which rules to expand on specifically for the setting that they're writing the rules to. But if you know the basic idea of the game, you're going to be able to pick up all the others and go, but not as smoothly as if you picked up, I want to play D20 Modern, and then I want to play, like I said, Farscape D20, and I pretty much know right away which is uh, what's going to happen in each. No, they're, they're going to be different enough that you're going to want to sit down and read the books and say, oh, okay, they... They took out this rule, but they expanded that one. That's neat. 
So you I think you said this is a 2D20 system. I guess I don't know what that means. So maybe help me help me understand what that is. I'm very glad you asked. So at its core, the system is always going to use this rule set for its its conflict resolution. Called 2D20 because you will always need two 20-sided dice minimum for each check. And your character is almost always going to have a attribute of some sort and then some kind of skill. And you are going to add those two together to get your target number. So I'm going to take Fallout because I'm a bit of a Fallout obsessive person. In the Fallout version, they have the special stats from Fallout, you know, strength, perception, endurance, all those fun things. So let's say I'm playing a super mutant. I have myself a chain gun, and I want to open fire on a death claw. I'm going to take my strength score. I'm going to take my big gun score, and I need to roll below that sum on two d20s. Each d20 that comes up below that score is a success. The more successes I get, the better. So what you're saying is this is a system that Matt and I might excel at because we're kings of rolling low. In fact, this is a system that almost caused me to get divorced. My wife was looking at the 2D20, the, the D20s that came with the Fallout game. She jokingly says, why is the Eye of Sauron on this? And I said, no, that's the vault symbol. It's on the one. Ones are good in this game. You want to roll really low. She looked me in the eye in a dead pantone and said, no wonder you like it, and turned and walked out of the room. <laughs> That's not oh grounds for gosh. divorce. I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, this is a That's a system I've never run across. I mean, I've played a lot of different RPGs through the years, but this is a system I have yet to come across, so sounds interesting. What's, <laughs> what's really interesting about it and that I like is there is, um, you'll notice I said minimum of 2d20s. You can buy for a test you particularly need to pass or you need to make sure you get extra successes on. You can buy extra d20s, and there's two ways to do that. The players will have a pool of action points, and the game master will have a pool of action points. If the player pool is empty. You can buy 2d20s by giving the GM the appropriate number of action points. But you know that in the future, he's going to turn around and use those on you. The other fun thing about it is any extra success, you need one success to succeed. Uh, you need a baseline of success is based on the difficulty. Let's say one success for the basic task. Any extra successes you make, you turn those into action points for the player pool, or you spend them to get extra effects for the check you just made. So it's a give and take. Do I want to be awesome right now because I just scored three extra successes more than I needed, or do I want to drop those three extra action points into the player pool for the next person to use? It's cool. Like that almost gives you that kind of feel. Like, hey, I'm just you're kind of I'm, I'm taking that big gun and I'm I'm firing and am I 
And am I firing it in a way that I'm setting up my buddy to maybe get a, a flanking shot or or, or kind of trying to push him into uh, pushing push that that critter out into the open so that somebody else can get a better shot. It almost works. It almost works so so cool in a narrative fashion. Exactly. That so that's why this has become my current obsession of choice that I really want to try soon. Hmm. Very nice. Very nice. That sounds like a really cool system. I think there's Conan. There's there's all sorts of genres that you can play in that system. If I were to want to play something that was D and D esque, right? The fantasy standard fantasy systems. Maybe I want to, but I and I want to keep keep it in that realm. What system might I want to look at if I was making the jump, say, from Dungeons and Dragons into uh, into this other system? Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer, for a very good reason, is Pathfinder by Paizo. Because, for people who don't know, Pathfinder has had a very interesting life cycle. It started off, in its first edition, was a spin-off of D&D 3.5. And now it's on its second edition, which is still very much has D&D in its DNA, you can see how they decided to streamline in a completely different way than D&D 5th edition did. They decided to still keep some bigger crunch in it, but still cutting off a lot of the excessive numbers bloat that I think 3.5 and, frankly, Pathfinder suffered from. But what they do that I absolutely wish more companies did this, I spoke for many, many years with the person who used to help run the line, a gentleman named Pierce, who's now retired. What they would do is when they were going to test their beginning level products, they'd set it in a room with people who'd never played RPGs before and sit behind a one-way glass and just watch and take notes and figure out where they were stumbling, where the new players were stumbling, where they were excelling, and then they tweak it, and then they do it again. So the Pathfinder beginner products have literally been blind tested to make sure that they are as beginner friendly as possible. Wow, I I was not aware of that. That's fascinating to me. I mean, just I, I, I guess it's a real testament to what they've done just from that perspective, because so frequently, you know, you take someone... I don't know, probably any of us on this conversation. We've probably played so many different things. We could pick up just about anything and run, but I like the concept of making it accessible to new players because there's so many things I feel like we take for granted because we've played RPGs for so long that, yeah, I mean, the mechanics are different. The things change from edition to edition, but we generally understand generally what's going in in rpgs and i love the concept of being able to bring in new people who've never seen it before and they become part of that broader community yeah i really have to give i've not heard of another company doing that and if they do i've not had another company in you know since 2006 i've not had another company use that as a point of pride like yeah this is how we test this product and we're really proud of that. I think it's with any with any game or any product, it's really about how do you get new players into the product and playing the game, right? I mean, that's 
that's how you build community. So I think that's that's a really a brilliant approach to what they're doing. And the fact that it's a Pathfinder happens to be a, a game that spawned from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's an obvious jump and still staying within very similar mechanisms for someone who's looking for something that's maybe an alternative to Dungeons and Dragons. And especially if you're on the DM side, it's not horrifically hard to even port some of your D&D products over to, say, a Pathfinder system because there's generally equivalent things, equivalent monsters, equivalent um, traps, that kind of thing, to really be able to convert convert those products and be able to reuse and, and get the most use out of, out of things maybe you've already purchased. Correct me if I'm wrong, though. Pathfinder, because obviously Pathfinder is, is a great example of something that benefited heavily from the OGL, but uh, their current second edition, they are not running all the way up to fifth edition or a modification, are they? For some no, reason, I was they're... thinking they're like closer to fourth edition. No, absolutely not. Still um, 3.5? It, it is still very much a, a heavily modified 3.5 at this point. Yeah. Yep. I hope no one tries to make a 4E system <laughs> clone. <laughs> one would think not, but, you know, I. It, the funny thing is, like I said, I've played so many different systems through the years, um, and I've enjoyed many of them that it, it's just fascinating to me to see what people try and what works and what doesn't. Because I would agree, 4th edition was kind of a train wreck, but, you know, yeah. I think 4th edition was very good at what it wanted to be, but it was not what the public wanted it to be. Right. Uh, I mean, I, also... I, I loved combat in 4E. 4E combat was great. But everything else around the game was very slow and felt tedious. And even combat was slow. But let's dissect that a little bit, though, Conzi, because, you know, you're, you're a, in many ways a miniature game aficionado, right? True. And, and 4E, I think where it... I think 4E in a lot of ways was the gamer's monkey's paw. Because I know from... I mean, back in the day, it was freaking Yahoo list groups that we were all on, you know the great, 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 great granddaddy of Discord. Yeah. Um, the, the big talk in a lot of Yahoo groups was always, oh, this class is not balanced against that class, or this class is yeah. weaker than that class. And I think what they set out to do with 4th edition is like, all right, let's make every class and every subclass balanced against each other so everyone has their niche and everyone can feel like they're contributing in meaningful ways, but there's no overlap. And, you know, it, it is the closest thing we're going to get to a perfectly balanced system. And then it turned out gamers didn't want that for an RPG. But it made a great board game combat simulation. Well, yeah, we'd love to min-max. Come on, let's just be honest. Who who hasn't played an RPG and run across at least one person in their group that's figured out the perfect combination to give them something eh, a bit overpowered? Yeah, very true. Well, and... Yeah, I will say 4E was a system, particularly when you hit combat, where each 
players turn, even if people were snappy, because there were so many things in the way that players could could activate and trigger their turns that oftentimes it would be 30 to 40 minutes at a you know with a four player group that I would find myself before I would be taking my next turn and well player you know that was also right about that time where smartphones and and tech were coming to the table more and more so guess what everybody wasn't paying attention until it was their turn because they were watching their phones or doing something else so it it there was, I think it was a there, was it a bad system? No, was it a system that was, in some ways, maybe ahead of its time? Yes. So so talking about that because you mentioned Pathfinder, in that same vein, if if we kind of diverge a little bit here, what do you think is maybe the easiest RPG product out there that you think? Anybody who's looking to dabble, and it doesn't have to be in the fantasy genre, it could be sci-fi or or whatever, but, you know, if somebody wanted to just get into RPGs but didn't want to be weighed down with the, you know, 150, 200-page rule book, you know, what do you feel is maybe one of the more accessible RPGs, something that people can just pick up and run with? And, and saying the words Pathfinder is fine. I just, uh, I, I was thinking between all of us, you might have a broad perspective of different ones you've tried. And, uh, you know, what what do you think is maybe that kind of, you know, system that you've heard of or maybe experienced that, uh, like we said, is just not bogged down with the rules and makes it easy for people to just get in and play? You know, the really sad thing is normally I would say D&D um, <laughs> because I think 5th edition is... Uh, having played since AD&D, you know, cut my teeth on Thacko, I think 5th edition is the most beginner accessible that the game has ever been. Um, and Pathfinder, it, it's a great, uh, again, a beginner, the, their beginner box is a great product, but then you look at the Pathfinder book, and it's a beast. It's like mm-hmm. two inches thick at the spine at least. Um, because it reminds they, me of the old GURPS books, if you remember those. Like, oh, yeah, the GURPS books were always like monstrously big. I mean, cool from the perspective that you could literally combine cyberpunk with fantasy and like do anything, but insanely large rule book, yeah. And and I think you know, I understand what they wanted to do, they wanted to take as much of speaking in D&D terms, the player's handbook and the dungeon master's handbook and put that together in one tome. But that's more than a single player is going to need. Uh, what I think solved it, there is a, a very simple system called Savage Worlds. I don't know if either of you have any experience with it. I don't, but I've heard of it. Yes. Heard, not actually played or tried it. So Savage Worlds is is developed by uh, uh, Pinnacle Entertainment, the the folks who did Deadlands, which for the longest time was my 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 top RPG. And um, it's meant to be a system where uh, it's so rule streamlined. We're going to sit down tonight and we're going to start a new game, and within half an hour we should all have 
characters made. Because everything is represented, be it a skill or one of your core attributes by a single die, D4 to D12. Hmm. And your combat is just going to be, here's a, a deck of cards, everybody gets one card, and there's your initiative uh, for this round. The only thing that makes it a little bit beginner unfriendly is the core book is system neutral, is a setting neutral. One of the things they've done, though, um, is they actually partnered with Paizo. And then they made Savage Worlds Pathfinder. So it's its own core book. It's uh, digest size, if you're familiar with that. So rather than eight and a half by 11, it's like like six by four, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's real uh, nicely on a small tablet. Exactly. And um, it is a streamlined, not only streamlined rules mechanics to Pathfinder, but it's a streamlined information to pathfinder so it's a great way to 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 fantasy in general so it's a great way in my opinion to be like no i want to sit down i want to play a very i want to get my family members who have been curious Hmm. into an rpg or i want to get this group of kids with we've got an hour only to play and they've all seen avatar or they've all seen Lord of the Rings, or they've all seen Dragon Prince, or anything like that, so they want to play fantasy, this is a great way to do it. Hmm. I, I may have to check that one out. I, I, it's, 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 it could be interesting to see what the heck it's like. Though, though I have to say, you said Thacko, and my, I, I hadn't decided if I was going to want to reminisce, or... Uh, start twitching over here because you know Thacko was always fun. For me, it's always a bit of both. <laughs> I, I actually have heard the story of how Thacko was created. It was uh, actually not as interesting of a story as you'd imagine. So I, I still want to hear it because I haven't. So, so um, I met the designer who uh, actually created Thacko, and at the time, he was one of the primary gms for tsr at gen con and tsr was in a bit of a bind and they were you know they had already announced they were coming out with ad and d and and they're like we still haven't solved the combat mechanic we don't know what the heck we're doing and the guy was in a rush and he was just like whatever he he flipped over a like a, a napkin or you know small piece of paper and was like here why don't you do this just very off the cuff, wasn't even thinking about it, and handed it to him, and thus Thacko was born. So he he still regretted it to the day he died that he ever <laughs> created Thacko. <laughs> he built his own system, and he was just like, "Yeah, it's like the stupidest thing I ever did." So this answers a lot of questions about Thacko, actually, knowing that it was done on a napkin in a few seconds. Yeah, and it it was like something where they just like they hadn't figured out how they wanted to revamp combat, and this guy was just very off the cuff. He was on his way to GM something at one of the original Gen Cons, and just was like, "Here, done." It's just mind-boggling to me. So, but interesting guy. That's a great story, though. You it 
I think it's more interesting than you give it credit for. Well, it's just kind of one of those, you know, you just kind of always think somebody's doing it. But it's, I, I think it, it speaks to, Ben, your discussion of, you know, some of the stuff that TSR used to release. And, you know, we think of, I don't know, those of us who've been doing this for 30, 40 years, and we think of, like, the evolution of the products, and they are much better quality than they were back in the day. But, you know, we we, we got to remember, this is just, like, in many cases, like, like the... um the people that built this were just like in some cases a gaming group based out of geneva wisconsin and you know coming up with this stuff in somebody's you know garage and you know there's just so much of it that you know was probably pretty raw back then you know that we just don't think about it because you know some of them went off to become very successful authors and you know, in their day, I mean, nowadays, I don't think half the people would probably know who they were other than, you know, new campaign settings are coming out that they, you know, nobody realizes Dragonlance was based on an actual D&D game that was, you know, the people participated in. Like, some of these characters were characters that somebody actually played many, many years ago, so. It's interesting, because I think we are seeing the next evolution of that, because you do have... You know, Adventure Zone got a series of spin-off comics capturing it, and Taldori is now everywhere thanks to Critical Role. Yeah. So, yeah, not many people realize that, you know, Forgotten Realms was Ed Greenwood's personal campaign at first because Ed Greenwood didn't have a webcam, right? You know? Yeah, well, and Margaret, what, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, and there was a whole group of them that uh, did Dragonlance together. Um, you know, almost all the original creators were involved in like the Dragonlance campaign. They 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 did that. A lot of those characters were people that, you know, would have been fascinating to see how they played them. You know, this this reminisce conversation has just made me think that maybe we need to have James on again in the not so distant future to reminisce about RPGs and particularly the history of Dungeons and Dragons and that evolution into what we now know as modern role-playing and modern role-playing campaigns and how they're so much different than what they once were. I would agree. I'd love to. All right. So that gave, I, I think we just went over three systems. James, if you could just give us a quick reminder what those three systems were, those three recommendations you just had. Uh, so to, to begin with, I said my, my obsession is the mod- current obsession is the Modifius 2D20 system. Um, and they have put their version of the system reference document for free on their website uh, for creators. Uh, we mentioned Pathfinder, uh, the the second edition version of Pathfinder as a very good uh, D&D alternative. And uh, then I mentioned the Savage Worlds edition of Pathfinder specifically for people who need a very, who want a very streamlined, uh, beginner-friendly system that still has all the fantasy, classic fantasy tropes uh, involved in it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. That I think those are great recommendations. There are definitely systems there that I wouldn't mind if I had all the time in the world to give a chance to try. 
while I'm not a big Fallout guy, I think that system and playing playing a Fallout game in that system, I was actually getting kind of excited when I was hearing you describe it. I, uh, makes me kind of want to give it a try, but uh, not enough time in the day right now. Anyways, well, if you're well, not, here, not sponsored content, but uh, Modifius has made the basic rules for all of their spinoff games free as well. So you can get like the the, the intro to Fallout uh, uh, digitally for free off their website. Very, very awesome. So if you're out there listening and you're looking for an alternative to maybe Dungeons & Dragons, those are three really good games. I think they're really good systems that you could go check out. Uh, James, thank you so much for taking the time tonight to to join us and tell tell us a little bit more about these RPGs. And like I said, I think uh, uh, we need to have you back on to go into that deep dive of the history of Dungeons and Dragons and 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 where RPGs were back in the the early days to when we for all first started playing these playing that game and to where it where it's kind of evolved today into the the modern role-playing game and really the way the modern campaign is maybe envisioned as well i would love to all right and with that we'll go ahead and wrap up the show thank you so much for listening make sure you leave a review of this show wherever your favorite place is to find podcasts oh and by the way give us a like on our facebook page and don't forget to follow us on twitter instagram or pinterest while you're at it if you haven't looked recently, make sure you catch up on the blog at wiscodice.com. Hey, Brian, what's that site? Ah, oh, darn. I forget. Uh, Justin, what's our website again? Wiscodice.com. That's right. It's wiscodice.com. And until next time, everyone, peace out.